Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. And we're very pleased to have Patrick Krill join us today as our podcast guest to talk about mental health issues and substance abuse among lawyers. So Patrick, would you share some information about yourself for our listeners? Sure. And thank you, Tish and Joanne, for the invitation to be here today. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you about what I believe is really critical information for the legal profession. Um, Just a quick thumbnail overview of my professional background. I currently have my own consulting practice working primarily with midsize and large law firms to help them navigate substance use and mental health issues. Um, I do a lot of education, prevention, and crisis management. Prior to that, I was the director of a clinical treatment program at the Hazlitt and Betty Ford Foundation for attorneys, judges, and law students. And so it was a residential treatment program, as you might imagine, or as you both know, when somebody requires a residential level of care, it means that their substance use disorder, and often in the case of legal professionals, their mental health disorder has progressed to the point where outpatient counseling or outpatient therapy will no longer meet their needs. And so I am a licensed alcohol and drug counselor. I'm also an attorney. And prior to my time at Hazelden and Betty Ford and going back to school and earning my master's degree in addiction counseling, I was a practicing lawyer in California, and I practiced both in a large firm and a corporate setting prior to really coming to the realization that I was looking for something else in my own professional journey, uh, which is what prompted me to pivot towards counseling and to go back to school and get my master's in addiction counseling. So it's really those three experiences, both as a practicing attorney, as the director of a treatment program for legal professionals, and now as a consultant to large law firms, it's those three experiences that I'll be drawing upon in our conversation today. Okay, well, thank you for joining us. And and I hear as you give that thumbnail sketch, how rich your experience is having worked in a large firm and in a corporate setting and then working in a treatment program that dealt with folks who were really having a difficult time, folks that needed to go into an inpatient program. So you bring an enormous amount of experience and expertise to this problem. The first question that we have for you today is what do we know about the rates of mental health distress and problematic substance use in the legal profession? Well, it's a great question. And what I can say is that we know more than we ever have, uh, but we still have a fair amount to learn. Um, I can talk briefly about three studies, which really do give us the best insight into the behavioral health landscape, if you will, in the legal profession today. The first study was a study that I led. It was a partnership between the American Bar Association and the Hazelden and Betty Ford Foundation. And we surveyed 15,000 lawyers across 19 states, all practice settings, all all sort of variety of work. 
And that was the 2016 ABA Hazel and Betty Ford study published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine. And what that demonstrated was that there is a significant amount of mental health distress, but also elevated levels of problem drinking in the legal profession compared to what you would find in the general population, as well as in other highly educated, high stress professions. So specifically, we found that the rate of problem drinking among attorneys was roughly twice that, for example, of what you would find among physicians. And we we measured problem drinking two ways. Uh, We used an instrument, and I don't want to go too far into the weeds here, but we used a World Health Organization instrument to measure problem drinking, which is defined as hazardous, harmful, and potentially alcohol-dependent drinking, and found that between 21 and 36% of licensed currently practicing, and I think that's key, everybody who is in our final data sample is currently practicing law, Um, Between 21 and 36%, depending on how you measured it, qualify as problem drinkers. So there's a significant amount of unhealthy drinking going on in the legal profession. That's not to suggest that between 21 to 36% of lawyers are, you know, what your listeners may think of as an alcoholic, but it does mean that they would possibly and quite likely meet diagnostic criteria for some level of an alcohol use disorder uh, given their reported drinking habits. So yeah, yes. we found a lot of that. We, we found that 28% of attorneys are struggling with depression. And of that 28%, the majority were experiencing symptoms consistent with moderate, severe, or extremely severe depression. So uh, you know, a really significantly elevated percentage from what you would find in the general population. We also found high levels of anxiety and stress and a low level of willingness to seek help for problems. So that's just a, a really quick, high-level overview of what that study found. You know, not good. It, the information no. is not good in terms of the profession. And I guess the final thing I should say about it is that we found that younger attorneys, and specifically those in the first 10 years of practice and those working in private firms, had the highest level of problem drinking and mental health distress. The second study that I want to mention really quickly was published the same year in 2016 in the Journal of Legal Education, and that was the Law Student Wellbeing Survey, and that was a collaboration between the American Bar Association and some other entities, and it was led by uh, David Jaffe, Jerry Oregon, Kate Bender, and what they found was also high levels of distress, high levels of risky drinking or, you know, potentially problematic alcohol use. I think they found that 25% of law students were drinking at levels that placed them squarely at risk for alcoholism. They also found high levels of mental health distress and a low level of willingness to seek help. And so taken together, those two studies, the law student study and the lawyer study, paint the picture of a sort of a continuum of dysfunction, as I call it, really just with problems that begin to emerge and mindsets that begin to emerge in law school around how you handle those problems and whether you should keep them to yourself and conceal them and you know all of the risks associated with, with getting help, et cetera. And so it really is this continuum that begins in law school and carries over into the profession. And then the final study that I want to just mention really quickly, it was from one school specifically, Harvard Law School. And this was just published a couple of months ago in the Harvard Crimson, which is 
obviously the school's paper of record. The students there recognizing the growing emphasis on lawyer and law student well-being in the profession, which really was precipitated by those two studies, the students there pushed the faculty. And I think that's noteworthy and I would say somewhat revolutionary. They pushed the school to conduct a survey, to survey the mental health of the students currently at the school. And they published the results recently, and they described it, the student body, uh, student government leaders described it as the grisly reality of mental health at Harvard Law School. And they found that a quarter of the students roughly said they were struggling with depression, a, a really staggering one in five said that they considered themselves to be at a heightened risk of suicide. There was a lot of imposter syndrome cited by the survey respondents. And I think the other final noteworthy thing was that very few of them, a very low percentage of the students there said they had anybody to talk to in their life about their problems. They felt isolated from being able to really reach out and talk to someone about their problems. And so in response to those to that study, to that survey, the students there are pushing the school to undertake a variety of reforms, including providing greater access to mental health resources. So that's sort of a, a snapshot of what we know. There are other schools that are conducting surveys of their student bodies. And my understanding from conversations that I've had, so this is anecdotal, is that other schools are finding significant levels of distress in their student populations as well. So that's kind of what we know right now. Again, we there's still a lot that we need to know, but we know more than we ever have. And Tish, I'm sure you're aware. Oh, yes. Almost a quarter century had passed. It had been about 25 years since any large-scale study of attorney mental health and substance use had been conducted. So the profession just hasn't been examining these issues at the level which we should. But that's beginning to right. change. It's changing since I came into the position as being the director of the Michigan Lab. I've seen it changing quite dynamically. And I think that the research that was released by the ABA Hazelden that you were the lead on really created a sea change and the law student research also, that people are talking about this and people are moving it forward. And a lot of lap directors are going out to the schools and talking to the students and the students are asked to read these articles and to think about it. And they have a lot to say when we ask them, but they also are very private and are afraid to say it to their school necessarily or to the bar where they wish to be admitted. So just the openness, the sunlight on the problem is making a difference and the continued efforts to keep this this issue up and in people's view because the study from the early 90s, it felt like the study was done, but then it just stayed on the shelf and it wasn't used to be a change agent. Right, right. So Patrick, which do you feel plays a bigger role in the problem, lawyers themselves or the culture of the profession? I would have to say it's the culture of the profession. Um, and I say that for a couple of reasons. One is that we have a sense that law students enter law school with levels of mental health distress that are roughly equivalent of the sort of broader population. But by the time they leave law school, the symptoms of depression, anxiety, chronic stress are significantly elevated. And there does appear to be 
there can be. Now, it's important to keep in mind that as high as these percentages are, the majority of students and lawyers don't struggle with them. Um, but so law school doesn't have to be, but it can be transformative in a very negative way for law student mental health. And certainly the profession, we know that that can also occur within the profession. So I think it, while lawyers bring many attributes to the table, that probably do represent risk factors for the onset of addiction, for the onset of mental health problems. I do think it's the transformational process that they undergo as a result of being a law student and then a practicing lawyer that really is more to blame. It cultivates, in my view, the profession does cultivate the problems. Yes. In speaking with one of the law school's professional responsibility class, a student asked, what can we do as job applicants to find out what law firm that is interviewing us, what their commitment to wellness is, or if they have a wellness program? And some of the responses from the professors were, you can't ask that. There will be a negative reaction if you ask that question. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that kind of attitude from the legal educators that the students would be at risk if they asked about wellness? Well, it's a really, it's a really interesting question and an interesting point. And I can certainly understand the response, you know, the suggestion that the students would be placing themselves at some sort of disadvantage by asking questions like that. I mean, that thinking really is consistent with where we've been as a profession for a long time. Mm -hmm. I would say, however, that that is actually part of the problem, right? Because mm -hmm. we yes. have sort of walled some topics off and, you know, certain subjects are taboo and you, you don't want to be viewed as anybody who is anything other than fully committed to the firm and to your work, you know, so don't ask about a well-being program. I get that, but that's part of the problem. And yes. it is changing. And I can tell you, you know, I've heard from a couple of large firm clients of mine very recently. So it's just, it's a really interesting question. I've heard very recently that they have been asked from, you know, summer associates over the last year or two, but also from first year associates, what is the firm doing to support lawyer well-being? And the one firm in particular they solicit sort of anonymous feedback from their first-year associates, and they were surprised how they're seeing this trend of, you know, increasing emphasis on, well, is the firm doing anything to support well-being or what plans are in the works to support well-being? And both of these firms specifically viewed this as positive. And, you know, it was a wake-up call for them in the sense that they needed to be more attentive to this and perhaps prioritize the subject matter but they didn't take a negative view of it necessarily, you know, or, or somehow, you know, view it in a way that could negatively impact the people asking the questions. I hope that makes sense. Yes, it does. Um, so, uh, you know, I think firms, it may be catching them off guard, but if anything, it's showing them that they need to be more attentive to these issues because lawyers just are, uh, younger lawyers are waking up to these issues more and they're quite frankly they're seeing the distress around them and they and they want change so the firms are beginning to become aware that this is an issue that they need to invest in they need to set up some processes and 
and take it seriously. So what do you think would be some of the important things a law firm should implement to address this issue? Well, I think the first thing that a firm should do is to just, what well, depending on where they are, right? I guess it should be mm-hmm. noted that, you know, sometimes at least I have a tendency to speak about firms as sort of this homogenous group, but the reality is, you know, they can have wildly different sort of structure, not wildly different structures, but different priorities, different resources, different cultures, very different cultures. So, you know, part of the answer is firm specific, but generally some of the key ingredients in my view are for firms to just begin to talk about the subjects, whether it's providing some level of education, seminars, you know, CLEs, whatever they can do to just bring this discussion around well-being and mental health and substance use into the firm to normalize the conversation. For example, I was speaking at a large firm yesterday in New York, and Mm -hmm. it was an overview about substance use and mental health and just, you know, kind of an introductory course, if you will, to the topics. And it was the first time anything like that had ever been discussed, as far as I know, in the firm's history, right? So I mean, that may be surprising to some of your listeners, but the more firms that I'm hearing from, or, you know, I hear from colleagues that many firms, this just has been walled off. It's just not something that you talk about. One thing I think with the larger firms too, it's really important and, and, you know, tell me what you think about this to really have a firm wide initiative, because I know from department to department in the larger firms, it can be dramatically the culture just within the departments can be dramatically different. Isn't it important to really target the legal administrator in the firm as well and get them on board? I think, Joanne, it's hugely important to get the legal administrator on board. And Tish, you've probably seen this through your work at the LAP, that often staff and sort of the administrative side of the firm is, you know, they're the first to become aware of problems. Um, But they sometimes are not empowered to do anything about them or where they feel that they would be sort of, you know, risking something if they were to do something to address it. So I think they are very important stakeholders in this process and in this problem and in the potential solutions. So I think you're absolutely right. You have to target firm administrators. The other group, and it's the toughest nut to crack, but the group that really does need to play a significant role here is leadership. So if the leaders of the firm or the the most highly regarded individual lawyers in the firm aren't on board with this idea of well-being or this idea that things should change around mental health and substance use, then you know you can have all of the good intentions you want and the firm can be doing as many things on paper as it wants, but you're not going to affect the kind of change that that you want to see. And so, for example, I can give you a concrete example of how I've seen that play out. I've been in firms where, you know, they want to provide education and they want to provide, facilitate some sort of conversation around these topics, but they don't get the management or the managing partner or anybody to sort of show up to the talks. And that can sort of leave room for stigma to emerge and people don't feel that this is a priority for the firm and I don't want to be seen as the person going to that talk or, you know, whatever the thinking might be. 
contrasted with firms that I've worked with who have said, you know, they send out a, an email from the office managing partner saying, this is worth an hour of your time. This is important. Go to this talk. You know, and so when leadership of a firm sort of walks the walk and they demonstrate some level of investment and commitment to the subject matter, it, that really is critical in my view. I can hear how that would absolutely be the case. And it would be difficult with some folks to get them to make that level of commitment and others will probably see the wisdom of it and get on board right away. Well, you're right. It's, it really is. It's highly variable. And even within the same firm, right? There, there could be some senior partners who say, we've got to do something about this. You know, we should really be attentive to this. And you could have others sitting across the table from them in the same conference room saying, you know, no, this, yeah. this is not where we need to be spending our time and resources. Yeah. And I mean, I've had this happen in small anecdotal settings, but where individuals will come forward and say, whether we're talking to a law school class or a firm or a bar association and say, well, if you talk about these issues of depression and and anxiety, you're, you're making people depressed and anxious. You really shouldn't, you shouldn't be talking about it. It's, <laughs> and I'm never quite sure how to respond. I, I always say, well, you know, these are human realities and we need to talk about them. But I don't know if you ever encounter that with people in the firms, in the big firms or medium-sized firms. But I do, I do. And I'm so glad you said that because it's not the norm, but sometimes firms will want to try to manage my messaging. So, you know, prior to me coming in to give a talk, they express something along the lines of what you were saying. You know, if you talk about these issues too directly, you're going to make people depressed or anxious or, you know, and they, they really almost want to, in, in a sense, kind of dance around the issues. And my response to that, and sometimes it prompts a little bit of an uncomfortable conversation, is that's the thinking that has played into the prevalence of depression and problem drinking and other problems that we have in the profession. I mean, that's the thinking that has got us to where we are. And so, it, you know, again, it depends on the firm. It depends on the stakeholder. Not everybody is as willing to sort of disrupt the status quo, if you will, as others. But I, I think that we have to because it's this idea that, you know, you shouldn't or we can't really talk about those things too directly in, in the context or culture of this firm. It's, that's played into where we are. Yeah, and that's a good response. Now, Patrick, we've heard of the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing. Can you share a little bit about that and what the task force is doing? Yes. So the, the National Task Force on Lawyer Wellbeing I guess I would say in a nutshell, is doing really exciting work. And the report that we published last year, in my view, is a really useful tool for the profession. So the task force was formed in response to those two studies, which I started talking about, published in 2016. A group of stakeholders came together from sort of across the profession, if you will, to say, what's next? okay, we've got the profession's attention, people are talking about these issues, but how do we turn this into change? How do we begin to precipitate cultural change? And it was the ABA Commission on Lawyer Assistance Programs, 
the National Conference of Bar Examiners, the Association of Professional Responsibility Lawyers. I'm sure I'm going to leave groups out, the um, ABA Center on Professional Responsibility, but all in, in total, I believe about 15 or 16 different entities were represented in this task force formation, um, including myself as one of the authors of the ABA study and then one of the authors of the law student study. And the goal was to sort of capture the moment, if you will, and to use the momentum that was building around law student and lawyer well-being and to, you know, put out some recommendations, to put forth some recommendations, concrete, tangible recommendations for change that stakeholders in the profession could adopt and could use to sort of springboard us to a better place. So we worked over the course of a year to develop again, what I believe to be a pretty comprehensive and useful report. It was published last August, and it's called The Path to Lawyer Wellbeing, Practical Recommendations for Positive Change. It's about 75 pages in length, and it has specific recommendations for all stakeholders. So, for example, there's a section for law schools, a section for regulators, a section for lawyer assistance programs, a section for legal employers, which was the section that I was involved in writing, um, the judiciary, uh, malpractice carriers, really everybody. We we have something for everybody in there. And there are recommendations that they can then take back to their own sort of domain or their own vertical within the profession and begin to implement. And if you haven't seen it, or if, I'm sure you both have seen it, We've but seen for it. your <laughs> listeners who may... Yes, right. I'm, I'm sure you've seen it. Um, <laughs> but for any of your listeners who may not have, um, you can find it on multiple ABA websites. Maybe we can publish a link to it along with this podcast. But it's we just, will. It's we a, it's will. a great yeah, resource. Yeah. And what I can say about that, which is, again, it was what we were hoping for, but it's really nice to see what's happening. 17 states, since the task force report was published in August, a total of 17 states have now moved to either already form or they're exploring the formation of their own internal statewide well-being task force. So that report and that task force itself were national in scope. And the idea was then to get states to sort of bring it down to the local level and to affect change within their own jurisdiction. And I think it's incredible that less than a year from the publication of that report, 17 states are already doing that. And I expect that momentum to continue to build. And, you know, from my view, that really is, that's culture change. And it's, that it's, is. it's a roadmap for continued change and growth. Yeah, I agree. I think that's very dynamic and remarkable that the change is continuing and that 17 states have made that effort and other states are in the process of doing the same thing. And that's unlike anything I've seen since I entered the field of the law. So I think that's extremely hopeful. I think it's very hopeful. I agree. Wonderful. So Patrick, I think we're coming to the end of our time for the podcast today. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, two quick things. One, you know, I would say thanks again for inviting me to be part of this conversation because it really is so important for our profession. And two, as sort of a preview of coming attractions, I think you'll both find this interesting as well as your listeners. I'm part of 
the ABA president's working group to improve lawyer well-being. And we've been doing a lot of things. We're working on a, a model policy for law firms around well-being and impairment. We recently hosted a workshop uh, and we're, you know, we're doing a lot of things sort of behind the scenes that are going to benefit the profession, but something that we're getting ready to roll out, I believe, by the ABA annual meeting or shortly thereafter, is a pledge. So this is a framework, actually, that I developed a few years ago, but haven't had a vehicle through which to bring it sort of to the profession. Um, and this ABA president's working group is now providing that vehicle, which is incredibly exciting and gratifying. But it's a pledge for law firms to sign on to. And it has a seven-point framework, and it's specific steps that they can take to improve lawyer well-being. And the idea is to get law firms to sign on to the pledge to say, we are pledging our support and we'll work to adopt this seven-point framework for improving well-being. And, you know, once the pledge campaign is launched, we'll get our sort of initial signatories. And then on an ongoing annual basis, firms will be asked to certify what they're doing to support their sort of ongoing certification. So, you know, what have you done over the course of the last year to, you know, fulfill step one, step two, step three, et cetera, of the, mm -hmm. of the framework. So we're really excited about that. We already have some large firms who have expressed interest in becoming sort of inaugural signatories to the framework. And we just think that that's going to be another another really exciting development along this path to lawyer well-being. That is very exciting and innovative. I like that a lot. Seems like it would be a change agent, something that can be talked about between different firms and standards that they can try to adhere to and move this forward. Exactly. Exactly. Well, Patrick, it looks like we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank you for a wonderful program. And Patrick, if our guests would like to follow up with you, how can they reach you? The best way to reach me would be email. And my email address is patrick at prkrill.com. So that's patrick at prkrill.com. Okay, thank you. And you have a website also, right? Yes, I do. Uh, and I have I house a lot of content there, including most of the, not all, but most of the articles that I've written or that I write. And so that's www.prkrill.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much, Patrick. We've enjoyed talking with you and we really appreciate you being our guest today. Well, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own 
and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.